0: Everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today it's episode 62, and I'm kind of calling this one "Buying Specialty Woods." Um, basically, I got a whole lot of kickback um, and feedback. I don't know. I guess that's the same thing. That's wood talk speaking. Kickback. I got a lot of of questions, comments on the tone woods episode that raised additional questions, which kind of are. F- Framing the format of this episode. So while a lot of people are referencing the Tonewood episode and last episode, I think it's leading to the idea of what happens when you need a very specific either species or cut or or, or treatment to lumber for the project that you're building, and how do we go about doing that? So should be kind of an interesting little side discussion that was spawned by the highly specialized nature of Tonewoods. So as usual, I always like to say thank you to the patrons who support this show. Uh, Patreon.com slash LumberUpdate is where all the magic happens. Uh, I had several new patrons this week and I do sincerely appreciate you guys helping me to keep the show going. Um, A little bit of interesting news I want to talk about because... People are going to ask me about it anyway, but uh, certainly we've talked about lumber prices, f- like in three different episodes since the whole COVID thing began. We saw those prices drop um, pretty substantially. They were uh, down pretty low, in the middle of summer, but we did just see a spike here again in the fall, and we've seen those futures pretty much double, nearly double, up to about seven hundred dollars per thousand board feet. Now. Some people are panicking, saying, oh, my God, supply chain crisis, blah, blah, blah. I I do think that there's some merit to saying the supply chain crisis is affecting some of this. There's no doubt that many, many sawmills um, still have labor shortages and still have uh, difficulty getting trucking international uh, lumber sawmills things like that are having trouble actually getting containers and chips to carry them that is certainly a problem i think labor shortage is more the bigger issue but you also have to recognize that there is a severe spike in lumber demands come the fall many of the vacation destinations don't have a lot of construction going on during the summer months because that's when people are using their vacation homes or when the resorts are fully booked so when the fall rolls around and things start to slow down first of all there's some communities that have a construction moratorium during the summer months because nobody wants to go to the beach and hear you know hammering and sawing going on all the time i'm reminded of that um john candy movie summer school where his neighbor is uh, not summer school, that's Mark Harmon, uh, summer rental with John Candy, where his neighbor is using a circular saw all day long and it's driving him crazy. That type of thing is not allowed in a lot of the higher rent districts. So contractors and such, they have to get all of their work done from like Labor Day to Memorial Day. So there's a lot of projects that get put off during the summer months and just start up again come the fall. Moreover, there's just substantially more construction going on I look at um, just my own woodworking habits and a lot of the hobby woodworkers I know we don't do a whole lot in the summer, but come back to school time, we're like back to the shop time as well. It's just kind of a circadian rhythm that we follow and the construction trade does the same thing. So while there have been. Um, huge demands for lumber to begin with that have compounded labor shortages and supply chain crisis. We saw things drop as things became a little bit more available as more people were were working on stuff during the summer, uh, working on filling those gaps in the supply chain. Well, now the demand has just spiked again and we're still a little bit hamstrung mostly from the labor shortages. And of course, it's gonna drive those lumber futures up. So if you remember, I predicted that the prices would fall but they would never return to where they were pre-COVID. And I still stand by that. I do think 700 uh, per thousand is a bit high, but I also think that 325 or whatever it was is is unrealistic. So there we go, folks. That's all I can really say about it at the time. Cause honestly, I'm so tired of talking about lumber prices who knows anymore, right? <laughs> just know that they're up and they're down and they're volatile. And, and you know, if you're surprised by that, welcome to the stock market. That's just the way things are. So let's get into the, the feedback we had here and try to shape this episode into talking about specialty woods. So um, Joe wrote in um, with, uh, basically the thought was, Um, recognize that you can get really technical all day long about tone woods and about soundboards. But in the end, you know, sometimes you just have to test them in the wild. And I think I said this, I'm not sure if I said it or I just thought it, but you know, sometimes the magic of a good guitar, just, you just got to play it and you just, you know, you can't predict it. And Joe has an anecdote where he was in a guitar shop doing a little bit of shopping and uh he had the same model of guitar same species it was an ash guitar um it was solid body same pickups everything and there were seven of them in the store and he picked up and he played his way through all seven of them and he got a different character a different timbre from each one until he finally landed on the one that was like "Ooh, that's the one that i want and at face value or i should say on paper same species you know same general look and appearance same finish that was used on it same pickups that were used on it same everything just the organic nature of that ash gave a certain tone that he liked in one of those seven guitars that the others didn't have so we can get technical all day long Sometimes there's just no explanation for it. And you just have to kind of trust the, the the loveliness that is the organic nature of woods. So that brings me to Rob. At the end of the Tone Woods episode, I talked about how um, that magic that we that I'm just speaking about, that organic tone um, has always been difficult Um to synthesize literally with electronic instruments but i did say that i do believe the technology has gotten a lot better because in the end it really is just mathematics it's harmonics and understanding overtones and and subharmonics or overtones or i should say o- undertones or, or sub harmonics if you want to call them that and rob says that um If you weren't already aware of it, check out the concept of physical modeling as applied to music and musical tech. It's pretty much ubiquitous in electric guitar processing now and should be much bigger in synthesis than it is after some very promising early products. But it's probably the future of synthesis and expression eventually. Most of the scores you're hearing on Netflix are already being done largely or entirely with expensive professional orchestral sample libraries. Though it's unfortunately hard to sell a studio exec at this point on hiring an actual full-size orchestra so um i had actually heard that that before and you know netflix is certainly one example but i've also seen several hollywood productions where the orchestra has actually been replaced now the um musicians out there are not happy with this and i don't really blame them as a musician myself but it is interesting um when you do break it all down you do realize it is mathematics and synthesizing if we have the processing power and the understanding the ability to actually create and sample well we ought to be able to create that same organic sound um we shall see right you know who knows if it's if it's all um smoke and mirrors you got to have a good ear some person has this more exceptional ear than i do can absolutely tell the difference it's like the same people who say there's no um substitution for vinyl and you know all you whippersnappers with your mp3s and your compression loss is just terrible you need to listen to vinyl so yeah um but what i really want to get into is a voicemail that Andrew sent in that I found particularly interesting.
1: Hey Shannon Andy in central Pennsylvania calling into the show for the second time loved the Tone Woods episode I've been looking forward to having one and with your background in music and physics that we're now learning about you obviously are the perfect guy to do this show um, I know you could do a whole series just on Tone Woods. you can't cover everything I just have two questions see if you might want to touch base on a little more one um, the quarter saw nature of tops for acoustic instruments instruments. I've known about this for years. Never quite sure why. You mentioned rigidity. I'm wondering if there's other aspects to the tone uh, change. Uh, as we all know, getting quarter sawn stock is one of the more expensive ways to buy wood. So that's you know one thing. But you didn't touch on a really interesting aspect of tone woods that's become maybe trendy. Uh, and that is the, what they're now calling sinker wood. Um the wood that's been submerged in water and then taken out dried and then used for tone. woods. Martin guitars is currently selling a 35, uh, uh, David Gilmore edition that uses sinker for the backs and sides. And there's other D 35s they'll do with sinker. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big deal thing. Uh, it's harder to get, obviously, you know, a lot more expense, but I had once heard long ago that one of the theories about Stradivarius, and there are many, uh, uh, was that he used sinker wood um, and that was the some of the uniqueness of the tone that he was able to get so um, just wondering if you have any um any knowledge or or speculation even uh, on the sinker phenomenon and whether it really makes a difference or if it's just another way to uh, charge more for premium thanks again for the show
0: <laughs> I love that Andy charge more for premium well let me let me address that because the first thing um uh, we actually work with Martin PRS, uh, Taylor, some with Gibson. One of the things that I can say is my dealings with the big luthiers. And I, I know we've sold to a lot of smaller, um, uh, guitar makers, several banjo makers as well, but they're genuinely good people. <laughs> Certainly we're all in business, but I, you know, the Martin guys in particular, they are all about the sound. Um, and I do think that, you know, when you're making instruments, the proof is in the pudding, And if you claim that this makes a better sound and it doesn't, there are people out there who will call you on it, audiophiles, Are a militant bunch. Militant is probably the wrong word because they're still joyful and jolly. But they will come at you in a big bad way if you claim a certain tone or certain warmth of tone exists and it's not there. Proof of that is the number of people who took issue with me saying the Beatles had very specific tone uh, because of the mahogany guitars they played, or that Hendrix had a specific tone because of the swamp ash guitar he made. I had. No fewer than 20 people who emailed me and said that I was full of you know what and they change guitars all the time and that has nothing to do with it. And if I really wanna know what I'm going on, look at this particular cut of this particular track, this particular side B, and listen to this bootleg recording of this and you'll see the tone is different here, here, and here. Audio files will call you out. So if a guitar company is claiming something, it's probably not to sell more. Well, certainly they wanna sell more, um, but they have done a fair amount of testing on this. So let's address um, first, the last thing you said about Stradivarius. It is particularly interesting um, and good timing. And I will post a link to this because Jason shared an article with me where there were some studies done uh, about the Stradivarius violins and it was the or it is uh, believed the the article is a bit sensationalist and a bit uh um absolute in some of its terminology but it has been researched and determined that it is the finish that Stradivarius used that really aids in creating the sound that is uniquely Stradivarius um he didn't use sinker wood um because sinker wood specifically has been sitting in the bottom of a river for a very long time and when Stradivarius was making the his violins those logs that are now no sinker wood they were actually being floated down the river or in many cases they hadn't been felled yet so Stradivarius wasn't using sinker wood but the heavy elements the heavy metals that were in a lot of his finishes helped to kind of augment the tonal quality of a lot of the woods he was using and i will post a Link to this article because it is particularly interesting. As I said, some of it doesn't quite jive, but I do think that there's some real science in there that that adds to this. So, no, I don't believe Stradivarius was using it. Um, research the the article I link to, and and we'll go from there. Next thing, um, the quartus nature certainly, um, and if I didn't make this clear in the Tone Woods episode when you have a quarter sawn board it actually is stiffer if you do a modulus of elasticity test on a flat sawn board you know same same dimensions and a quarter sawn board of the same dimensions, same species even cut from the same tree you will find the modulus of elasticity is higher in the quarter sawn nature and that's due to the way the structure of wood when you look at those growth rings running straight up and down across the thickness you are also looking at those medullary rays running Across the surface that are of a denser material. There's more beam strength in that wood, so it snaps back um, when, when pressure is put on it, and therefore it is more rigid. And if you remember me talking about the combination of density and that high modulus of elasticity is what gives tone woods what makes for good tone woods. So when you take a good tone wood like Sitka spruce, quarter saw it, you take what was relatively stiff. And actually make it stiffer while maintaining a relatively same density, and you're you're getting an even more resonant tone wood out of that. The other thing, which you know might be obvious but should be stated, is the dimensional stability of a quarter sawn piece when that that wider quarter sawn piece is used you know in relatively thin nature it if it were flat sawn it would warp and move pretty substantially whereas the quarter sawn nature really allows it to hold this shape a lot more because if that starts to move and deform and change the volume of the sound chamber you're going to have real issues so stiffness helps not only in the from an acoustical perspective stiffness can also help just from a structural perspective because a stringed instrument is under tension at all times. So that's why you're finding those quarter sawn things. I think primarily it probably started because people wanted that stability more than anything else. So now let's talk about sinker mahogany. Um, and I've had some questions about sinker mahogany before, and this comes back again to buying specialty woods. There are a lot of lumber yards out there who actually do stock sinker mahogany. It's actually the only way that one can buy Cuban mahogany, Suetina mahogany, which is a CITES um, Appendix 1 species. It is illegal to trade it uh, because it can't be felled. But if it is found in the bottom of a river, in other words, salvaged, it is still, um, you are still able to use this. The the Cuban mahogany that I have worked, very, very small amounts of it, was Sinker Cuban mahogany. I've also worked with Suetina macrophylla um genua mahogany, sometimes Honduran mahogany, um Belize mahogany that was sinker mahogany. Um, just up the road from me in Pennsylvania and heard Hardwoods, they sell sinker quite a bit. Uh we've brought sinker mahogany in um at, at uh my job specifically for customers. Um the thing is it, is, it is huge in the luthier market right now. Where else you find it is in the reproduction markets because they want that old growth mahogany. So what's going on here? There's a couple things that are happening. Um, sinker mahogany, or not just, I keep saying sinker mahogany, but sinker woods in general, because there's more than just mahogany, is wood that was felled. We're talking like 18th century, 19th century wood that was felled and it was floated downstream to get to port or to get to the sawmill was dragged out on sledges and things like that floated downstream to a sawmill many of those logs got hung up on the bottom um, sunk because there were so many logs you know on the river at the time that logs pushed other logs down and they got hung up for one reason or another and they weren't retrieved centuries have gone by and sediment and sediment and sediment layer after layer has been piled on top of these things and they're essentially glued into the bottom and they're never going to surface of their own. Occasionally, um, you know, a big storm hits and you get a real gully washer in some of those streams and something will break loose and you'll see um, logs drifting downstream that are hundreds of years old. The real key to this is these logs were felled you know back in completely untouched virgin forests in the 18th and 1900s they are true old growth woods very very tight grained um and you know when you hear they just don't make them like they used to or you can't get mahogany like you used to or you can't get this species like you used to it's because they are old growth forests that really really closely spaced growth rings of a tree that As a seedling grew in total shade, you know, and had to sprout up to get to the canopy and didn't have any branches whatsoever. Perfectly clear, long, straight grain bowls with super tight grain. If you've ever worked with old growth mahogany or sinker mahogany, it is absolutely gorgeous. Now, because of that straight grain, tight growth rings, you have a totally different density, totally different working properties. It's like a different species entirely. And that that density changes those tonal characteristics and this is why the sinker woods immediately began they were grabbed by the luthiers they're really really popular in um, restoration and things like that but honestly the big guitar companies they've got more buying power they've got more you know ability to source directly and buy in volumes and they started buying up the sinker material because of that tonal quality of that different density. But the other thing that you can't really describe, because essentially what's happening is you're increasing the density, um, but maintaining a lot of the same rigidity. And if you remember in the last episode, I talked about how lower density and high stiffness make for a good tone wood. So we're taking mahogany, which has the lower density and a good amount of stiffness, and we're adding to the density. So therefore we, we ought to be subtracting from the resonant quality that makes it a good tone wood. So while you may lose a little bit due to the added density, you're gaining harmonic depth because of those centuries of sedimentary layers that have piled on top of the wood and essentially impregnated the wood with minerals and heavy metals and all kinds of silicic compounds that create massive amounts of harmonics that don't exist in, you know, wood without it. The added density is going to change the harmonic nature, but all of those other little things create harmonic deflection um, or subharmonics. So when we talk about harmonics, we talk about the eigenfrequency, the natural frequency of, of a material. So the eigenfrequency of this particular piece of old growth mahogany will generate a series, a harmonic sequence or a harmonic series of overtones. That series of overtones will be unique to that particular eigenfrequency well when you then change the density and you change uh, the, the density not only by just older growth material but then by changing the material composition adding different elements adding different materials with a dramatically different densities in there you are Taking that eigen frequency and causing deflections as the sound wave propagates through it at the speed of light, it is slowed down and deflected and, and kind of diverted off that path because it hits a really really dense piece of copper, you know, or a dense piece of of, of sand, silicon dioxide, and those deflections create subharmonics or undertones, and this is where that richness comes from. We actually um, can create undertones. You think of a stringed instrument, a violin or a cello, by increasing the pressure applied to the string by the bow, you can bend the pitch and and kind of flat it a little bit, take it down a quarter tone. In fact, there's um, some 20th century musicians, George Crumb comes to mind immediately, that have entire string quartets based around this idea of of over-bowing in order to create undertones. Um, Crumb's Black Angel string quartet is a particularly fascinating one because you'll have three of the instruments in the quartet playing with normal bowing and the cello pushes really hard and creates that undertone, which creates a different harmonic sequence um, from the other three instruments. And you actually get... The, the natural harmonic sequence and the undertone harmonic sequence kind of bouncing and competing. In some instances, superposition is coming into play, but in other instances, they're competing with one another like a secondary dominant, creating almost a tertiary harmonic sequence that oftentimes appears kind of acoustically in magical places, like the back corner of the room, because those competing series are bouncing off one another, bouncing off the concert hall. Usually the, the Black Angel Quartet is performed in a large concert, concert hall with you know really really resonant um harmonics and you get like this weird tertiary overtone series that suddenly just pops up like in the upper balcony and you're looking over your shoulder thinking oh there's a cellist in the upper balcony and it's actually that that secondary dominant or tertiary harmonic sequence created by the two competing harmonic sequences sorry that was a bit of a tangent but um sorry i'm a fan of george Crumb, if you can't tell but it it's Particularly when you, you know, I'm kind of blowing it into like a macro instance here where we're intentionally creating those undertones. But when you are getting that deflection and subharmonic undertone created just by the the sound wave passing through the wood and bouncing off those various sediment layers, you get a totally different sound. You get warmth, you get color that didn't exist before and is not possible to get in mahogany. So lots of things. Sinker mahogany is super, super old. So it's very dense, old growth, you know, dense growth rings that changes the tone that adds a little bit more warmth because of the increased density. Adding in all the um heavy metals and sedimentary layers and, and silicic materials um, just completely changes the game and i have witnessed um both martin and taylor martin is is particularly as you said really pushing a whole series of synchro mahogany guitars you can absolutely hear it even if you don't have a good ear it is very apparent um it's like deep in the chest the sonorous nature of these synchro mahogany guitars you will feel it like resonating your sternum it's it's life changing when you hear it so yeah uh, it's no doubt that they're selling a lot of them um by the way, if you're all interested in this whole idea of harmonic overtones and things like that, check out like um, Tibetan monk throat singing and hearing the harmonics that bounce out of that. Very, very cool stuff, which, by the way, throat singing is increased pressure on the cricoid uh, the base of your, your your voice box your larynx that increased pressure in there by singing first of all singing pitching it very very low you can get more audible harmonic sequences obviously the higher the 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 natural frequency the higher the overtones are going to be so if you pitch that and original note quite low the overtones are actually audible to the human ear it starts there but in order to get that low note to sing in the throat. <clears> throat> You're singing with a totally different mechanism than normally, you know, resonating your chords and that extra pressure at the base of your larynx and the cricoid is what is causing those undertones. It's very, very cool. I know this is the lumber lumber update and I just kind of went totally off on on a geek moment. But, yeah, can you tell that I followed a lot of 20th century musicians and, in fact, dedicated my senior recital to Charles Ives and and 20th century music? So, yeah, let's let's move on. Um, Rob has um, an interesting point here about, again, tone woods, but buying these specialty woods. He says, "I have a, a consumer question. he might be able to answer. Lately, I've wondered a lot about sourcing soundboard wood and panels. There are a lot of vendors supplying it. However, vendors that market wood specifically for soundboards usually sell super bourgeois book bookmatched top halves. Do much of the machining in advance and, cha- and charge more for the result than the average guitar in my collection is even worth. Not all of us want to start up building acoustic instruments at that level of financial commitment. However, I'm not yet." aware of a consumer quality source for something like say the laminates of common tone woods and who knows what what else would be uh, used for cheaper ukuleles and acoustic guitars i'd like to try building a simple beater uke or acoustic someday but i'm incredibly annoyed by all of the above is there much trade in laminated soundboard material at the industry level or or the manuf or or are manufacturers of cheaper instruments just making their own plywood in-house? So here we're talking about a highly specialized material. We're talking about soundboard, not only soundboard good um, species, but soundboard cuts, quarter sawn, matched, wider panels. Oftentimes they're matched because they require a wider panel and already thinned out because there is some, you know, by, by thinning out that material, you're, you're, um, decreasing the density as well and also messing with the rigidity a little bit and that's what creates that that magical combination so rob's concern because the only place to get this stuff is from luthier suppliers places like you know Mac, or there are several guitar manufacturers who sell kits as well the answer is how do you go about buying soundboard material well you buy the species you source the species first and you buy it however you can get it um, and that is not going to be in a perfectly quarter sawn board. It's not going to be in thinner stock. It's not going to be perfect wood. It's going to be whatever the heck you can get. Um, Sitka spruce is not a, you know, super commercially sought after species. And when it is sought after, it's sought after by the luthiers. So well, actually you could say there is, it is a sought after commercial species, but it's specifically for the luthiers. The luthiers are are, are buying it. Um, and the concession owners who are felling it are talking directly to those guitar manufacturers, those violin manufacturers. They're selling it directly to them and they're selling the logs. Or in many cases, they may be selling the cant itself. You know, they, they fell the tree and their local mill is, is debarking them and possibly cutting them into a cant. And that's all they're doing. One of the things I can tell you from selling to luthiers is they don't want us to touch the wood. They want to do all the milling and machining themselves because the precision they require is of such a different level. The grade and quality and their concept of clear versus my concept of clear is totally different. They will defect some of the most beautiful wood you've ever seen because it won't meet their particular standards because it's not just about aesthetics. As we've said, it's about tonal quality so they don't trust anybody to do it. Um, we managed to get PRS one year to actually agree to allow us to mill up some mahogany for them, and they basically stood over the shoulder of my <laughs> rip saw operator and the molding operator to make sure that we were meeting the exact specifications. Once we had been able to to, to prove it by making like a 100-some blanks. Then they walked away and let us machine the rest of it. Um, most of these manufacturers do all of that milling in-house because the specifications are so incredibly exacting. Not only can you not get a sawmill to do this, they don't trust them to do it. And the sawmill doesn't want to do it either um, because there's so many things that can happen downstream shipping from the sawmill. So for the average maker of a guitar, you know, one at a time, you kind of have to buy from those distribution houses because they are taking on the risk. They're buying the raw wood. They're defecting out huge amounts of it. That's not going to meet in the process of milling up guitar ready parts. If you wanted to avoid all of that, you could possibly find a way, you know, if you had a mill, say say you're in an area where Sitka spruce grows naturally, you could go to a mill and say, I'd like to buy some Sitka spruce, you know, I will buy a log from you and they can mill up a cant for you. Uh, by the way, if if people don't know a cant, um, imagine taking a log, a round log, and turning it into a square. Like, leaving as much mass and, and taking, I should say, taking off as little as possible so that you're just re, re, uh, revealing, like, the largest square or rectangle you can get out of that log. There's a cant. Um, you could possibly buy the entire cant from them. Um, it would be Probably, if they had a huge order they were filling for, say, Gibson or PRS or something like that, you know, you might be able to get one of those cans, but they're going to be trying to fulfill the order of this large paying customer first. But still, you could probably buy it and then you could mill up, you know, from there. Be prepared to have a lot of material not meet the standards, not meet the grade, and be prepared to have a lot of material to make a lot of different guitars. You're gonna have a really hard time buying enough for a single guitar or even a couple of guitars without all of that labor being done first. And this is very much the same with any quarter sawn wood let's not talk about tone woods we're not talking about guitar making or instrument making if quarter sawn is your specialty wood that you need to buy you know you can find quarter sawn in in white oak you can find quarter sawn in red oak pretty commercially available because they're they're hugely sought after for flooring Um, a lot of flooring some for cabinetry um but that's the industry that's driving the sawmills saying, okay, we will waste a lot of wood and saw this specifically quarter saw. You can buy quarter and because it's highly sought after for that ribbon striping that's so distinctive. There are sawmills willing to take on the added labor and the additional waste of quarter sawing because there is a strong market and a price that will make that extra labor worthwhile. There is not a strong market for quarter sawn cherry or quarter sawn maple or quarter sawn walnut. Um, personally, I love all three of those species in a quarter sawn or rift sawn look, but there's not a strong enough demand and a strong enough reason for the those species to be quarter sawn for a mill to take on that additional expense. And I keep saying waste, but it's because there's a major amount of waste when you quarter quarter saw a log. There are no mills willing to take that on. And this is why for the most part, you're finding these mills will just flat saw or through saw or plain saw the log, and then straight line rip it into boards, and and what you get is what you get. And you will get some quarter sawn material, you'll get some rift sawn material, and you get a lot of flat sawn material. So if you wanted to specifically source quarter sawn material in one of those species that's not known for it, you can go and look through the stacks and you will find some quarter sawn boards. And a lot of instances, you might find a specialty retailer that might actually sort that stuff out and put it on a separate rack with a higher price tag of course but the other thing to remember is in every flat sawn board imagine a flat sawn board with uh that cathedral pattern running right up the center what you might call a pattern grade board with that nice centered cathedral On either side of that cathedral, flanking it is rift and quartered material because that's how a log is structured. Those circular rings on the log, as they spin out, they curve out in a frowny face or smiley face, depending upon your mood, from that central cathedral, you get grain lines running 45 degrees and 60 degrees and 70 degrees and 80 degrees and 90 degrees as you move further out from the cathedral pattern giving you rift material and quartered material so if you're looking for Sakes quarter cherry you could go and dig through the stacks for a while and end up paying more or i would suggest going and buying 12 inch wide cherry or eight inch wide cherry. Buy wider cherry boards and plan to rip it yourself to get your quarter saw material out of that. Buying that specialty material, you can ask for it, but you have to make it worth their while. And if it's two or three boards, there's no way you can justify that cost, um, the cost of labor required to do that. Moreover, even if the boards are already sawn, think about you yourself going to the lumber mill and taking the time to pick through 3,000 board feet in order to find the right boards. We do it all the time as hobbyist woodworkers. We think nothing of it because this project we're building is our baby and we want the perfect stock for it. Um, Asking a lumberyard worker to do that, who's paid by the hour, who's trying, who's got a whole list of orders that he or she is trying to fill. His forklift is idling behind him at this moment to go and put that same amount of time into it, especially when he or she doesn't actually know what you're making. There's no way that they can possibly pick out the perfect board for the top of your credenza because they don't know what that you're building a your credenza. They don't know the dimension of your credenza. They don't know what your design idiom is that you're going for so you can't ask them to do that so they may take some extra time but that's you know time on the clock they they could be pulling an order that is a much larger volume Um, so you have to think about those things the more specialized the material gets in order to buy it the the more transformation you can expect there to be in other words the more milling the closer to that finished product you will find there will be some retailers out there who are going to sell good tone wood species, but you're going to get what they have. Don't expect to have perfect quarter sawn soundboard ready type material because that's not what they sell. They sell lumber. Um, and in order to go from lumber to soundboard, there's a fair amount of machining and milling that needs to be done there. So the answer here, uh, Rob, is... If you, you're, you're trying to save money on the guitar, I respect that, but there's a reason that a lot of the guitars cost what they do. There's a great deal of labor, not only in the actual construction of the guitar, but the prep of the material and the sourcing of the material itself. So in my mind, if you have a supply house that is doing that work for you, you're probably going to end up actually saving money in the end because A... You're assuming that you can even get that particular species in, you know, a small volume. That's a big assumption because you're going to have a real hard time sourcing small volumes of tone wood type species. But to say that you can, then think about all the time and labor that's going to go into actually prepping that all of the material that can't get used, that becomes waste. That's, you know, time is money. And I realize for the hobbyists, we don't quite think of that the same way, but All of that has to be accounted for somewhere. And in the end, you're probably better off and cheaper to buy it from a luthier supply house. It's the same adage of, you know, I got into woodworking because I wanted to build the dining table and I thought I could build it cheaper. So you go out and spend $3,000 on tools and $500 on lumber to build that table that you saw in the store for $1,500, you know? It never works out in the end. So, hate to, to be the bearer of bad news. There is no special answer to help you go out and buy this stuff because of the amount of transformation that has to happen to go from raw log or can't to soundboard ready material. So, the other thing, you know, I, I talked about quarter song, but this, as I said, applies to, to riff material. Um, other specialty things, a lot of times people are looking for heart. Center uh, woods, like for timber framing, because having that that pith or the heart right in the center means that you're going to have a more stable uh, stable cant. It's going to check, but it's going to check on all four faces. So if you have a you know a six by six square timber, it'll check on all four faces, and you'll end up with a six by six, or maybe as it shrinks, a five and a half by five and a half timber. Whereas if the pith is off center or the pith is not there, you have a free of heart center timber, it will not check evenly it will check maybe on one face and it shrinks more in one dimension so what started as a six by six cant is now five and a half by six and that can cause problems so a lot of timber framers when they're looking for specific stable parts maybe it's um uh, the sill or the long beams um um oh shoot i just just left my head what's that long beam called at the top Oh, shoot, you can tell I'm not a timber framer. But anyway, there are going to be specific parts they want stability for, and they will specifically source heart center or boxed heart timbers. Well, you can't just expect a sawmill to produce this. You can't just go to a normal lumberyard and say, I want boxed heart material. That has to happen at the sawmill you're you're sawing the log differently when your yield is meant to be box heart timbers first of all you only get one box heart timber out of a log because there's only one bit of pith in a log unless it's like a crotch grain species but you're not going to use that for long straight you know beams or anything like that so that decision has to be made way upstream it actually has to be made in the forest because when you know that you're you're getting a box heart timber and you're specifically usually looking for a larger size and a longer length the tree itself has to be picked you know you can't just go and cut down any tree because you have to make sure that i'm going to get a 15 20 30 foot long bowl, straight bowl, that's going to yield me that boxed heart material. Free of heart center um, is another specialty wood, but you'll find that's a lot easier to come by because you can make those decisions at the sawmill. You don't have to make that decision in the forest. You also can saw out a boxed heart section from a log and still get free of heart center timbers from there. But so many sawmills may decide to try to get the most boards, the most pieces out of that log, and they might overlook free of heart center in order to get a greater number of boards. So buying that specialty material, that free of heart center, means you need to kind of special order that. Now you will find some lumber yards that cater to timber framers and they're going to have. Um, fohc free of heart center or boxed heart materials regularly in stock or at least have sawmills that they buy from that know that's what they're looking for so again and and then there's a, thousands of other kind of specialty type situations that you may run across and if you are having trouble trying to like source those that's because there is usually an industry need for that particular um Specialty, whatever it is, whether it's a species, whether it's, you know, um, a, a box heart or not, there's a specific need in the industry and that industry is buying it all up. You know, it's not their resellers aren't buying it. The industry is buying direct from the mill or direct from the concession. And that material never really becomes available to the average consumer. Um, Another example of this, um, Sharon, um, who I, I have to throw her postscript in here, she posted a question and said, by the way, I'm also a hand tool school member. So hopefully that bumps my question to the top of the line. No comment, but your questions in the show. Hmm. Anyway, Sharon said your tonewood episode was perfectly timed to help me decide on swamp ash for my next guitar. The only problem is no one has any raw swamp ash in stock locally or online. Is an expensive body blank my only option? Here again, Sharon, swamp ash is known to be a phenomenal tone wood ash, white ash, you know, any, any, you know, of the the numerous species of ash. Um, and let's not even mention the emerald ash borer, because that's causing limits, limiting supplies in ash. It's also causing quarantine in certain states on ash. But leaving all that aside, ash is a great wood for flooring. Um, the major use of ash is in flooring. You will find some furniture makers using ash, but most of it is going to flooring manufacturers. And that's whatever ash. It doesn't really matter the species. It can be any number of ash species that will apply there. Swamp ash is specifically known for its tonal qualities. So when a swamp ash tree is felled, you better believe that concession owner is calling a luthier because they know that here is a specific tone wood. The solid body guitar makers love this stuff. Now they're also buying regular ash, um, but they're really going after the swamp ash. The flooring industry doesn't care if it's swamp ash. So they're going to buy, you know, large volumes, but that swamp ash won't garner a higher price tag from a flooring manufacturer, but it will garner a much higher price tag from a guitar manufacturer. And here again, that guitar manufacturer is not buying material and then reselling it. They're buying material in order to make their own guitars. So actually they are reselling it, but they're reselling it in guitar form. Or occasionally those guitar manufacturers will make body blanks available um, and they will actually sell them. You could buy them direct from Martin or direct from Taylor or PRS or you can go to a place like, you know, uh, Stumac, a distributor, distribution, luthier distribution house and buy it from them. And here again, those distribution houses are buying direct from not just the sawmill, but the guy that owns the concession, the person who's actually felling that log. And they know that here is a plantation of swamp ash or here's a concession that has swamp ash on it. They're reaching out to that guy because they know swamp ash grows in, well, swampy areas. So they're reaching out to the people that have concessions in those swampy areas. And they're saying, what kind of swamp ash do you have on your property? Okay. I want this tree, this tree, and this tree. In many instances, they're buying a tree that won't actually be felled for 10 or 20 years. That's how far upstream this goes. And that's why going to a lumber yard to buy rough sawn or as Sharon puts it, raw swamp ash, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. If it does happen, it's because somebody made a mistake. It's because somebody doesn't know what they have. They don't, they can't tell the difference between one ash and swamp ash. And it just got lumped into the whole pile. And that was a pure mistake. It's like when you find that, you know, fiddleback maple piece in the Home Depot rack, it was a mistake because somebody wasn't paying attention. So yeah, Sharon, your um, solution just like Rob was saying, is uh, an expensive body blank is probably your only option, um, unless unless. And if you go way back to the episode I talked about on buying lumber and alternative ways to buy lumber, one of those alternative ways was reaching out to local cabinet shops and millwork houses and buying their leftovers, buying their scrap wood. If you happen to know. Um, A guitar manufacturer in your neck of the woods. And it's not just the big guys, folks. There are lots of one-man luthiers out there um, who may have material that you could buy because they may have an agreement you know, with Gibson or PRS or somebody like that, and they're buying raw material from them directly. Um, so that's another way, reaching out to them and, and you know, becoming active in luthier forms and things like that. You'll find, you'll start to build a network and you'll find people that, that can help you out when it comes to buying um, this material. But I think even then, it's gonna be rare that you're gonna find a raw rough sawn board. There's probably been some milling or transformation done along the way um, that's going to drive up the price a little bit. So, um, yeah, moving on here. Um, uh, this brings me to Matt who had questions about monkey pod and Koa. He starts first with a little bit of kickback on your tone woods episode while, and this is Matt speaking while not at all Hawaiian, I was stationed there for a few years recently and tried to learn about and acquire and work with the native woods while I was there. For one, the true Hawaiian pronunciation of ukulele is to, is to use the starting sound of uke as in spook instead of the hard u sound. In other words, ukulele. Um, Matt, I appreciate that. Um, little fun fact. Um, I technically am Hawaiian. I was born in Hawaii. Um, but I would never say I'm a native Hawaiian because <laughs> I'm an Olly through and through. I was, a I was an air force brat who happened to be on the big Island or excuse me on, on the Island of Oahu when I was born. So yeah, um, I am, I am not uh, a Hawaiian, although I play one on TV cause I was born there. So yeah, well aware that it is ukulele, but it's one of the things that always drives me crazy. It's like listening to NPR and there'll be some white dude who's talking along and suddenly he like, you know, saying like a, a, a Mexican term or something like that. And he says it in a full accent, you know? And it's like, who are you dude? Like, don't do that. So yeah, if I started, you know, throwing out my, um, my Hawaiian pronunciation that would probably throw everybody for loop and I'd be getting emails going, what you doing, brata?" You know? So yeah, another little side there. This, this episode, I'm sorry, we should just rename this the tangent episode because I'm not talking about wood today. I'm talking about everything but wood carrying on as we're talking about ukuleles. Um, <clears throat> Matt goes on to say, In regards to koa, I seem to grasp that it is a field tree, similar to walnut, that mostly grows in the fields of the Big Island. I lived on Oahu. It exists among the cattle, and although koa is a very expensive wood, it's nothing compared to the value of the cattle that graze near it. And so since these farmers are in the business of raising and selling cows, they don't care about the koa trees. They are farmers, not lumberjacks. When these trees do fall naturally, they, they often aren't noticed by the farmers in time for them to be harvested for lumber before the cows damage them or they have significant rot. This low supply and huge demand has made this tree very expensive. I only managed to purchase one piece while I was out there and it was a solid piece with mostly straight grain about the size of two Louisville Slugger side by side. Um, it was $197. I never figured out the board foot cost of that piece but it was a lot. Koa is hard to find on Oahu and very expensive when you do. Also, similar to Walnut, most pieces are very knotty and are only available in small chunks. It's difficult to find koa boards or anything like you would find a domestic species here on the mainland. So yes, um, Matt, you're absolutely right. Koa is, is definitely a field tree, is not a canopy tree. It branches very quickly. It's one of the things that gives it its lovely variegated color. And a lot of the very common curl that you find is the fact that it grows in open fields, often wind-torn fields, um, not just on the big island, but often on the windward side of the big island. That's where most of the stuff comes from. <clears throat> also, one of the great things that gives it its color is that igneous soil. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, how's that Matt? You like it when I go to my Hawaiian pronunciation there, (laughs) The, 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 uh, igneous nature of that soil that makes the black sand beaches of the big Island is what gives Koa so much of its character. Um, and you know, it's not growing on Oahu because it's totally different soil chemistry, but also very different, um, topography and different, um, um, Bioclimb as well, different amounts of forest. And just there's so many differences from one island to another. The Big Island definitely has the forest that produced the co op. <clears throat> but he brings up an interesting point that I know I've mentioned on the show before, but the number one cause of deforestation, folks, is not logging, it's cows, it is cattle ranching um, because they need fields. And when you're raising cows, like Matt said, you're in the business of raising healthy cows, not healthy trees. So a lot of trees get cut down in order to create grasslands for the cows to graze on. So yeah, it is very common that, the koa falls um, and doesn't get used. Although I think much less common, because this has become a known fact for the lumber suppliers or the the sellers of koa, and they will often reach out to those farmers. Just like I was talking about a second ago about reaching out to the local guitar or banjo maker or the local millwork house and building a relationship with them. These resellers of wood will reach out to these farmers and say, "Hey, you have a you have an untapped resource here." So, um, a you know, would it be okay if, you know, this tree is, is relatively old now, can I come in and fell it? I'll take it off the property and I'll pay you for it. Or this tree fell. Or if you know that a tree fell, please call me and I will actually buy it for you rather than it just rotting and you getting no money for it. So that is not as much of a problem anymore. You're not finding that the wood is going to waste because the market demand has meant that people have decided to get creative about this and build relationships with those farmers themselves. Um, it is incredibly expensive though, just because the big Island is still quite small. Now, Koa has been planted and is growing successfully in other regions of the world with similar climates. And we are starting to see Koa coming from other places than, um, than Hawaii. Uh, so I still don't think it's going to change much in the way of the price, just because it's still a relatively small, um, uh, geographic distribution for the species. And, just the nature of the tree means that it's not going to go big and strong and get really really big boards um, but that high amount of figure and variegated grain makes it so highly prized it will always be treated like a figured wood and anybody who's bought figure wood knows you just can't apply a board foot price to it the unique nature of figured wood means that market board foot price means absolutely nothing it's like when you go to the seafood restaurant and you see the lobster dinner that has no price next to it it just says market price you know it's going to be expensive because it's you know, high demand. In this case, you're dealing with a unique item that you just can't put a board foot price on. Namat continues and says, while well, on the topic of Hawaiian woods, can you explain to me a bit about monkey pod? It grows all over the island, but is usually only taken down in the way of new construction. It is also similar to walnut in its growth, but often you can find some clear species, especially because it's prized for its sapwood and live edges. It's also pretty expensive over there, uh, out there at over $15 a board foot in most shops. Crazy thing though is it's similar or possibly the same tree as acacia, which is dirt cheap when you're buying a brand new bread, a bread, a brand new bread bowl from Target. Can you shed any more light on monkeypod and its relation to acacia? Also, why is acacia so plentiful and inexpensive in a lot of modern home decor? target, Pier one, et cetera, compared to monkey pod. So let's address the last part first. Monkey pod and acacia are not the same thing. You will find that there are some similarities, but monkey pod, um, as you intimate, has started to develop its own market. And it is very well known that this is a different species and should be treated as such. Acacia, however, is not actually a species of wood. It is not even really a genus of wood. It is a conglomerate whole bunch of species, like thousands, literally thousands of species get lumped under the name acacia. A lot of them are Indonesian species, um, Southeast Asian species, uh, uh, South uh, South Pacific species that all get felled and run into one central um, sawmill area, all sawed as one. Usually at that sawmill, it's sawn into smaller parts and glued up into those large Um, finger jointed board type panels that are then sold on mass to the manufacturers who are turning bowls or making furniture and things like that in Indonesia or Southeast Asia. And they're shipped to the retailers in the U.S. uh, and even Europe as furniture, not as wood. Um, It's made out of acacia. Sometimes you'll find some suppliers, like a lot of the big, like Pier 1 type folks who are sourcing, they actually have a line into and may actually own the company that's actually making the furniture. You know, as a way to cut costs, they've, they've acquired more of the links in the supply chain. And some of them will actually throw out a genus and species. You know, this particular acacia is made of this acacia, you know, meloxenin. and blah, 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 blah. and i'm dubious of that um because when you just take a couple steps further up the supply chain and know that these logs are being felled in like no fewer than 20 different countries and all floated together into one sawmill probably in java or sumatra somewhere um sawn into boards and then glued up into large panels which are then shipped over to like mainland asia and turned into furniture um yeah, I'm sure someone has has started to do this, but you got to have the buying power of an entity like IKEA before you can fully have control over the supply chain like that. So the reason that it's so inexpensive is it is it is a sweatshop industry. I mean, it is it is a near endless supply of wood. The stuff grows like weeds all over with an enormous geographic distribution. There's very little attention paid to grade or color um, because you know. The grade, you can always increase the grade of a, of a species of wood by decreasing the cutting size. You know, I can get a, a board that's actually riven with rot and knots, but if I'm cutting out, you know, a three-quarter by three-quarter by six-six long pin blank, I can get a perfectly clear board. Out of that, and if you have no regard to grade because you know you're just going to cut it into strips and small staves and glue them together into wider panels, you can buy the dirtiest of dirt cheap material, put very little effort into the milling of it because all of it is going to be, you know, made higher grade in the glue factory later on. Huge amount of reduction in cost, huge amount of reduction in the cost of labor. all of that brings huge amounts of material into the furniture manufacturer with a lot of the milling already being done because in order to glue up those large fingerboarded, finger jointed panels, you had to obviously S4S it at some point. It was run through a molder uh, and those finger joints were put on the end. So it was glued into this panel. So when the furniture maker gets it, instead of starting with raw material that has to be jointed and plain and all that, they already have a panel. It's like building with plywood essentially. And they can put it on a CNC machine, have it cut underwater pieces, put it on a CNC, and turned it into a bowl, and put into a crate and shipped over to the U.S. Um, it is a, it is a sweatshop industry, and I, sh- I don't. I shouldn't say sweatshop because it's got negative connotations, but at the same time, that might actually apt in certain instances. But it's not to say they're all bad. There are legitimate and sustainably sourced and well um, uh, paid uh, uh, laborers in, in the supply chain out there somewhere, but it still is a mass production industry. So that's why it's so inexpensive. Monkey pod, however, is a different genus, different species. In many instances, a different family from a lot of the species that get rolled up under acacia. Um, you're right. It's found its market is live-edge material. It's found its market as that sapwood live-edge material and oftentimes is felled, and sawn like right there in the forest into these larger chunks that is then taken and used for mantelpieces and shelves and things like that. Um, monkey pod, um, certainly it grows in, in Hawaii, but that's not where most of the stuff comes from. You'll you find that it's coming um, from uh, Central America and South America more than anything else. And like when you walk into a lumberyard and you're buying monkey pod, or you walk into like a restoration hardware and anthropology and you're buying a shelf or a mantle that's made out of monkey pod, that's stuff- is coming from central and south america primarily um you also will find it in australia um, and tasmania um, papua new guinea um, all that oceania uh, area down there you're getting monkey pod coming from those areas and it is a gnarly wood so like i said before you can get a clear or desirable um cut of wood out of any gnarly wood just by reducing the cutting size so they're cutting away all the nasty stuff and leaving you with what is desirable in the open market. Um, And that now has become its own. I mean, the fact that people have actually heard of a weird species like monkey pod tells you that there is a market for it. And it's largely because of retailers like um, I keep saying Anthropology's restoration hardware. I don't even know if they carry such things because I haven't darkened the doorstep of one of those places in decades. But those type of stores, they're the ones that are marketing this material for live edge shelving and things like that. And that's now where the demand comes from. So there we go. There again is another specialty wood. Um, Monkey pod, if that's specifically what you're looking for and you can't find it in any of your retail lumber yards, you might look further downstream to the people that are actually selling the finished product, that finished live edge shelf, and discovering where they're getting their material or buying their material (laughs) stripping the finish off and using it for whatever you want to build it out of. So there we go, folks. That's the buying specialty woods. Um, We kind of went down some very specific um, rabbit holes, but those are specialized rabbit holes, right? When you start talking about specialty woods, it's kind of the same story. It doesn't really matter what it is. And I'm sure I will get people to say, well, what about this instance? Or what about balsa? Or, you know, we talked about basswood in the past and fishing lures and things like that. Basswood is one of those species that is very difficult to find in anything but like carving blocks. And it's very difficult to find it in like four quarter and five quarter lumber. It's not impossible. It's just the market says this is what people want is big hunks of it for carving. So the sawmill. Is sawing it into those hunks. Um, I can tell you, we have a um, a company who sells those carving packs. You can buy uh, like um, uh, figure carving, small sculptural carving stuff. You can like buy a box of 12 blocks of basswood. We sell lumber to a company that does that. We sell boards to them that they then rip and mill and turn into those small carving blocks. We had to actually go to a sawmill and specifically say, okay, we want this. We want five quarter, six quarter, uh, six, six, eight wide lumber um, because our customer wants to mill it himself. We had to actually place a special order with one of our sawmills in order to do that. Um, If you want basswood boards. Basswood is not impossible to find, but you'll find that it's a rarer species if that's what you want. Um, You generally have to make a special order at the sawmill itself. So there we go. Anyway, my point is, you could probably think of 20 more specialized examples and it's the same answer is what is what is it that makes it specialized what is the industry that has made that specialized and more than likely you'll find that that industry is buying direct and for you to buy one or two pieces direct or even you know it's just not it's not uh, lucrative for the sawmill to do that I appreciate the questions, folks. I appreciate the, the immense amount of feedback that just uh, on not only the Tonewood episode, but the Softwood episode. A um, lot of really positive responses to those. Um, I myself felt they were pretty good episodes. So I felt good about them. I'm glad to hear that you guys like them as well. Thanks as always for the questions. Please keep the questions coming. You can go to lumberupdate.com. There's a form you can fill out to submit your questions there. Or you can email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. Uh, Most of our questions this week came into the inbox directly. Uh, It's the best way to send those uh, recorded voicemails as well. So thanks, everybody. Go buy some lumber. Go buy some specialty lumber. But if you do buy specialty lumber, let me know where you found it because that stuff's hard to find.